You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster. On today's show... They want to invite caravan after caravan into our country, overwhelming your schools, your hospitals and your communities. They're trying to convince everybody that the most important thing in this whole election, the thing you've got to fear, is they're a bunch of impoverished refugees a thousand miles away. Voting to keep illegal immigrants out of America or to give Donald Trump the thumbs down. We'll get the latest on the eve of the US midterms. My guests Kathleen Burke and Jeffrey Howard will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Can Saudi Arabia's elderly monarch pull the kingdom out of its worst political crisis in a generation after the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi? Will the latest US sanctions against Iran weaken Tehran's influence in the Middle East? And why the Australian government is relaxing working visas to allow backpackers to spend longer down under. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Kathleen Burke, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London, and Geoffrey Howard, who's a lecturer in political theory, also at University College London. A very good day to both of you. Now, there are just 24 hours to go before Americans cast their vote in elections to choose who will serve them in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Normally, this wouldn't be a big deal, except that President Donald Trump claims America is at risk of an alien invasion, not from UFOs, but from a caravan of illegal immigrants from Latin America and even the Middle East, all of whom are aiming to enter America via its border with Mexico. He claims that only the Republicans can keep the tide at bay, whilst the Democrats have accused him of scaremongering and racism. In the end, it is the public who will have the final say in what is shaping up to be a referendum on Mr Trump himself. So, interesting times in the United States. Jeffrey... The way that uh, the polls are telling it, it looks as if the Democrats will win the House of Representatives with the Republicans retaining Congress. Now, if that stacks up, what is it going to mean? Or rather, the the, the Senate, I should say, what is it going to mean for for Mr. Trump? Well, if the polls are right and the Democrats regain control of the House of Representatives, it will mean that there's a wide variety of of tactics at the Democrats' disposal that they can deploy uh, to hold uh, the president accountable. They will acquire the subpoena power to order various members of the administration to testify before the House of Representatives. Um, They may have greater powers to demand to see the president's tax returns. And in general, they can just make it a, a, a huge amount of trouble for the president. Um, and if it turns out that um, uh, special counsel Robert Mueller, who's been investigating Russia's involvement in the 2016 election and any potential collusion by members of the Trump um, campaign uh, with Russian efforts um, comes out, it will mean that there's some real mechanism through which um, we can hold hearings, we can investigate the basis of, of uh, the special counsel's findings, um, and they won't be able to just sweep it under the carpet. Um, if 
the Democrats do even better and take the the Senate as well, um, then that's going to spell real trouble for the president. I can see you shaking your head there, Kathleen. I don't think there's a prayer in the Senate, <laughs> um, which at least will allow uh, Trump to get through. For example, if he gets if if Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, decides to wander off this mortal coil, um, it means that he will be able to get through his uh, next uh, proposal for the Supreme Court because the Senate uh, for Supreme Court justices and ambassadors and cabinet ministers, uh, sorry, ministers, secretaries, cab secretaries, uh, the uh, Senate has to advise and consent. So he will almost certainly have a Republican uh, Senate. Um, The other thing, of course, that uh, having the um, House uh, Democrat is it's blocking. It's not only what it can do, it's what it can stop being done. And in many respects, for many of them, that will be just as important as anything else. Mm. But it's really interesting, I think. Um, I am not as convinced that the Republicans are going to lose, as many people are. I know all the arguments. Do you think they'll get the clean sweep here? They'll get, no, they'll I, don't get think, I don't think... I think they... I, I worry because, um, you know, going back to... Uh, 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 to um, uh, Bill Clinton and it's the economy stupid. Uh, there's an awful lot of small districts out there that are unlikely to to switch. Um, and all they need to do is stop the Democrats getting 23. If the Democrats only get 22, um, that goes. It just seems to me that that the economy, although it's not coming across in the polls and so forth, is something people have to to be very careful yeah, about. And I, and I guess, Jeffrey, as well, that, that, that there are people who will say, well, OK, then, so maybe we haven't seen the full benefits of um, Trumponomics. But at the end of the day, he's taking on the Chinese and he's got them scared. Or if you're very optimistic in that sense, you'd say that he's got them on the ropes. And, you know, you've got a booming economy. You've actually got very good non-farm payroll, as we saw last Friday. So they would say, OK, then, you know, why why change? Let, let's just stick with what we've got. Yeah. And you're, you're sketching the basis of a very plausible Republican midterm strategy here. It's just not the one the president has pursued. He hasn't <laughs> been talking. Thing, isn't it? <laughs> That's exactly right. He hasn't been talking about the tax cuts on the campaign trail. He's been talking about the caravan. Uh, are, you, are you hinting here that maybe, just maybe, the U.S. economy could be heading towards some kind of a slowdown? And <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm not even sure about that. It's, it's, it, 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 I mean, it's fascinating because Trump, in a rally the other day, um, addressed this very issue. And he, you know, as ever, Trump is reading the stage directions. He's reading out loud the thing that his aides are telling him uh, as the rationale for a particular strategy. And he's telling his crowds. And what he basically said is, you know, if I just talk about the economy, my crowds get bored. He needs to talk about the caravan to keep people excited, to keep people booing, to keep people people shouting. But there's a risk there, which is that you're going to get a bunch of, you know, establishment mainstream Republicans who are uncomfortable with this largely xenophobic, racist rhetoric the president's throwing out there um, and might be otherwise inclined to support him if they keep that emphasis on the economy. But Trump keeps dragging the emphasis off the economy. There also is a problem with the economy. If you look at Indiana, for example, with the the tariffs in the north, uh, the steel firms are loving it. 
In the south, the soybean farmers are hurting. Mm. In the north, uh, those who make parts, for example, from steel, to a certain extent are loving it, but they have to uh, they have to charge more for parts too. For example, the recreational vehicles uh, industry, which is very important there, and that means they're going to have to charge more. So the, you have to be careful which congressional district you're talking in, for example. And one thing that really strikes me, if you look at Iowa, which was, you know, was, was you know, Trump above all, mm. three of the four Iowa districts are now being, the, the polls are making a strongly, well, relatively strongly Democratic and one Republican. Uh, but if the Democrats get all three of those districts, they're, 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 it's pretty sure they're going to, you know, as Iowa goes, so goes the nation, as one says, mm. or did say. So that's one of the bellwether states. That's mm. right. But if one of those, if, say, the first district and the fourth district remain Republican, that probably will mean there won't be the blue tide that the Democrats are really hoping for. Mm. Although having said that, the Democrats have, have tried to rein in that expectation. They don't want to jinx things. And you can kind of understand why they've had to play a cautious game on this, because it was supposed to be a shoe in for Hillary Clinton in 2016. That didn't happen. And clearly, there's still a lot of um, contempt in some quarters or mistrust of the Democrats, because I guess that Trump is just so unique by anyone's standards. But um, they, they've, they've really got a tough act to follow on this one. There's a real problem with the Democrats, too, is, is they don't have a positive story. They've got a lot of little little bits. Mm. But it takes Obama to come and say, this is what's really important. Right. So it's a scattered narrative, That's basically. That's right, exactly. It's a, if there's one thread that ties the narrative together, it probably is health care. And I think the Republicans are quite nervous about this. Um, well, so some much, of their candidates have had to flip-flop on that, haven't Indeed. they? So much so that the candidates are claiming that they're now in favor of, of the pre-existing conditions <laughs> portion of the uh, Affordable Air, uh, Care Act, the piece of Obama legislation that makes it illegal for insurance companies to discriminate, discriminate against customers and the basis of, of pre-existing conditions, all while these candidates have a have a very strong record of opposing um, protections of pre-existing conditions. Now, I think it's very plausible that many of these candidates, if they win re-election, will go back to opposing pre-existing conditions. But um, you get a real sense of frantic um, desperation coming from some of the Republican candidates on the health care issue for mm. this very reason. Okay, so it's, it's a tight contest. I mean, it, it could go one way or the other, but I mean, either which way, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose, someone's going to be very, very disappointed someone's going to have to go back to the drawing board and completely rethink their strategy going forward into 2020. Now, this is a geographical tour. So let's go from the United States to the Middle East, and in particular, Saudi Arabia, because King Salman is going to embark on a week-long tour of his country as the absolute monarchy faces its worst political crisis in a generation, following the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It is the first such, tri such trip for the 82-year-old king since he acceded to the throne in 2015. He's expected to launch health infrastructure and education initi initiatives, although it is unclear whether he will be joined by his son, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who has denied any involvement in the death of Mr Khashoggi. I mean, Jeffrey, what does it say about how the murder of Mr Khashoggi is playing out in Saudi Arabia? The 82-year-old king has been wheeled out of his palace to go on this domestic charm offensive. Well, it's it's quite striking, isn't it? I mean, it, it suggests that they're trying to draw attention to other issues, that in the kingdom this is something that, that people are talking about. Um, 
you know, Turkey has claimed that uh, the highest echelons of Saudi uh, leadership were involved in this, although they haven't gone so far as to suggest that the king himself has been involved in the murder yeah. of Khashoggi. Um, it seems highly unlikely that King Salman is going to turn um, on his heir apparent, the person, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who he has declared must be the next leader of Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that even members of the, the Republican establishment in Washington have been saying that, you know, um, MBS has got to go. He can't mm. be our man but anymore. But having said that, it's not just the it's not just the Republican establishment. Even some of Saudi Arabia's traditional allies are suddenly getting a little bit wary of MBS. Absolutely, and it's it's not clear. I, I don't think we know many details yet about these these health and education and infrastructure projects. Um, but it does look like putting on a band aid on a pretty serious problem, and it's not clear it's going to work. Yeah, and and that's the point, Kathleen. Do you think it's really going to make any difference? Well. Um... <laughs> On the, I mean, the seriousness of the of the, of the case uh, is partly reflected in the fact that, as far as one knows, uh, the king is actually in his way in dementia. So whether he's actually going to be able to do very much uh, is problematic. Uh, so you've got that on the one thing. Um, the, the the other thing is one one thing that Ben Salman has in, for him is that he's young he's thirty three and something on the order of sixty percent of the uh, Saudi Arabian population is under thirty, so uh, and Salman is eighty two. Now uh, I'm not saying there's going to be civil war. I don't think Ben Salman has got the judgment yet or the experience to know the limits. The, the safe limitations of exercising power. We must remember that Kushner is a f- close friend of, of bin Salman, so I don't know what other Republicans might think they can do uh, compared to, to his influence. But I think quite clearly they have to try in Saudi Arabia because right now you have got a stalemate. You've got a whole whole crew of elderly brothers and cousins and sisters, cousins and aunts um, angry at the sheer um, ripping off of their assets done by bin Salman. Mm. Yeah, because he imprisoned, he imprisoned some of the very high-profile members like uh, right. Al-Walid bin Talal in, well, it's a very luxurious imprisonment, in fact, at the Ritz. Pretty good. In Riyadh. <laughs> there was what was happening in the basement that perhaps <laughs> provoked the greatest questions about the form of, well, the form of interrogation. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but the, yes, but the point is, is that Ben Salman at this point does not seem to have an awful lot of support except from his 82-year-old half-demented father. Mm. Now, this does not seem to me a strong basis of support if he, if he, loses, if he loses American support and Israeli, of course. I think he might be in his 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 uh, position might be a little bit more crumbly than looks at this point. Mm, so is that something that you share, Jeffrey? Because yes, he's supported by his dad, but but on the other hand, given the the very close economic relationship between the Trump family and um, Saudi Arabia. They're not really going to let him fall, are they? And of course, Saudi has positioned itself as a very strategic player in curbing Iran's influence in the Middle East. So they have to keep him there, surely. Certainly, the play that the White House has been hoping will work is that they can tough talk. They can talk tough temporarily about um, Khashoggi's murder. And then they can hopefully wait till the midterms come and the 24-hour news cycles pass by and people just forget about it. Mm. Already people aren't talking about it as much. And so I think this is part of the same calculated play to just change the change the story um, and see if people forget. But, mm. but, but it's I, not really going to go away, though, is it? Because it's not just Khashoggi. Khashoggi's death 
has shone a much-needed spotlight on what was happening in Yemen. Of course, people were talking about it, but perhaps we're now talking about it in a more focused way. That's right. And you do have a contingent of citizens in Saudi Arabia who welcome a lot of the um, more progressive initiatives that Mohammed bin Salman has himself ushered in. And then they see him murdering um, someone who has also pushed for more reform in Saudi Arabia, although of a particular democratic cert. You see that journalist being murdered by this putative reformer, and that casts a lot of doubt on him. And so I, I think that um, there's a, this is a complicated um, relationship between the domestic politics of Saudi Arabia and the foreign policy, but they are united by this um, urge to just change the story and hope mm. that people just forget about it. But but, but let's take that theme of, of changing stories, Kathleen. Will, will Turkey be happy to go along with this? Because Turkey, Turkey's got the dirt on this story. Yeah, this murder happened in their territory. They've been drip-feeding some information. We Well, we've heard that the new boss of the CIA actually heard the murder tape recording what was going on. But um, Turkey's at the centre of this, really, isn't isn't it? Well, it certainly has the uh, the wedge, as it were. I mean, it's unfortunate for Saudi Arabia that uh, instead of just strangling him, they felt they had to chop him up and dissolve him in acid, which sounds like some of the worst uh, uh, serial killer mm. descriptions one can Horrific have. Horrific overkill. Well, yeah, <laughs> several times it sounds like. Uh, so in that sense, yes, Turkey... <laughs> Turkey, on the one hand, has has received a lot of money from Saudi Arabia. But Turkey, on the other hand, is in competition with Saudi Arabia for that side of the Middle East equation. I'm more against Iran than you are, except that Turkey, of course, has also has links with Iran. So Turkey has a balancing position that Saudi Arabia doesn't have. Um, I, but I can't think that Saudi Arabia is too worried about Turkey. What can Turkey actually do to it. Mm, I guess it, I guess it's it's um, really more information as such and the embarrassment that that brings but look even if we move on from this story it's that potentially could send out the wrong kind of message to MBS in other words okay look I got caught out on this but you know what there are a couple of other people who are saying some pretty unpleasant things about me and um yeah, let's remove them off the scene. We'll be a little bit more careful than we were in the, the case of Mr. Khashoggi. But let's just, it, it's still the same policy. It doesn't change because you know at the end of the day that because you are important in the jigsaw of the Middle East, you have the, you have the support of uh, the commander-in-chief, one of the world's most powerful politicians, in this case, Donald Trump, but it pretty much is carte blanche to a certain extent. I mean, I think that's that's absolutely the problem. I think we need to realize that Saudi Arabia is an extremely dangerous regime, that it's been, as a country, has been exporting some of the most virulent versions of jihadi-wahhabi ideology that has motivated huge, important terrorist movements around the globe, and that it is no friend of liberal democracy. It is no friend of liberal democracy. And so that, that's why I think it's great that you still go to the, the Washington Post homepage and right there at the top, they're reminding us about Kosoji's murder every day. And I think this is a, a real opportunity beyond um, the, the fact that justice is required in the case of Khashoggi to rem remind ourselves that um, we shouldn't be comfortable with Saudi Arabia being a close friend uh, of the West because its fundamental values are at odds with our fundamental values. And, and that's something we, we must not forget. Okay. And then you go back to uh, uh, foreign policy, which is my home home territory, of course. And what's the balance against Iran? Israel isn't going to want Saudi Arabia to fall out. Yeah. So you've got to depend which is your, mm. are your moral positions uh, 
which we all share, obviously, more important than uh, keeping Iran from racing around the Middle East. That's right. And so, there was this complicated Obama play to shift that axis so that we went to Iran. But of course, Trump has interrupted that. OK, then. So some sound thoughts on which to uh, move on, in fact. But you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Kathleen Burke and Jeffrey Howard. Coming up next, can a fresh wave of US sanctions weaken Iran's influence in the Middle East? Weighing in at almost 400 pages, the Monocle Guide Cozy Homes is packed with everything you need to know about making a great place to live. The book is filled with handsome residences and all the contacts you need to make a home that will last a lifetime. And it's a book that celebrates the people who know homes should be able to cope with kids, dogs and a few scuff marks too. It's a book that knows a home is only as good as the community it's in. And it's a book that takes you through the front doors of everything from mountain hideaways to modernist towers. So be cosy and buy your copy today at monocle.com. Still with me are Kathleen Burke and Jeffrey Howard. Now, the US has slapped new sanctions on Iran and has threatened to impose more to stop Tehran pursuing what Washington calls outlaw policies. The measures are part of a wider strategy by Donald Trump to curb the Islamic Republic's missile and nuclear program whilst whittling down its influence in the Middle East. Well, the sanctions, which cover Iranian banks and the country's national airline, have been condemned by Tehran, which says the government will not give in to US pressure. So, Kathleen, tough talk coming from the Iranians, which we would expect, but the reality is that this is going to hurt the economy really, really hard. Yes, it is. Um, They've managed to continue uh, exporting a million barrels of oil a year, of course, thus far, uh, getting a little bit in. Uh, They do have links with Qatar, uh, which also has links with Turkey. So there are in, uh, you know, sort of uh, not straightforward routes, but but others. Um, China is helping. Russia is helping. Um, What this is possibly doing to the United States, in fact, uh, in the longer term, is that it is causing a a number of countries, such as the European Union and China and so forth, to set up alternative ways of carrying these things out they want that the United States cannot necessarily stop. So this could well be, I know this isn't directly your question, but it's one that I think is extremely interesting and might actually run out of this, which this could be almost a high point of American financial power in terms of uh, imposing sanctions on other countries. It's interesting that you say that because um, in a sense you can kind of understand why the Americans, well, not the Americans, the Iranians I should say, are perhaps feeling a little bit defined about this because yes, you know, of course we know it's going to hurt but then the argument there, Jeffrey, is well, we've had so many sanctions imposed on us, we've actually got used to this way of living. It's it's what it's going to do to you in the long term, America and your allies, resetting the template. So in, in that sense, we're the winners. That's right. I mean, so the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, um, is liking to play up the fact that these are going to be the the toughest sanctions ever placed, he said, on Iran. Um, But even though they are extremely tough and they're much tougher than than U.N. sanctions that have been previously in place, they're put in by the United States, whereas the U.N. sanctions have the backing of most of the world. And that makes a huge, huge difference because it does isolate the United States to some considerable extent here. And I think that makes um, Iran uh, much more defined 
defiant than they might than they might otherwise be. Um, and so, you know, Donald Trump put up his uh, a tweet the other day using some art from Game of Thrones to suggest oh, yes. that <laughs> sanctions are coming on November fifth. And and sure enough, the the commander of the Al Quds Force in Iran retweeted his own uh, Game of Thrones style. I mean, it was, it's it's really quite quite unfortunate um, the, the degree to which um, this is quite middle school juvenile stuff mm. here we're seeing about stuff that will have a huge impact not really on the elite in Iran they're going to be whining and dining just fine well not whining but they'll be dining just fine and they'll be having uh, whereas ordinary people in Iran are absolutely going to feel feel the brunt of this and it's going to going to have terrible effects on the lives of, of working families in Iran. But then, but then, Kathleen, I mean, just, just to pose this thought, I mean, uh, the White House says, look, this is all about curbing Iran's power in the Middle East because it's seen as a very malign, out-of-control influence. But if you're a cynic, you would say, no, that's the smokescreen. The real motivation behind this is regime change. But rather than go in there militarily, use your economic heft to achieve what you want. Well, John Bolton, the national security advisor, for example, has already said that regime change is, is uh, what fundamentally they, they want to do. Um, but you're quite right that it's not necessarily any more the done thing to go in and, and knock over a, a, a regime. Uh, too many people don't like that anymore. Um, I, I think a lot of this, in many respects, is driven by Israel, by the, uh, uh, the American-Israeli uh, um, uh, Alliance, uh, because it's it's the only democracy in the Middle East, as uh, at least traditionally has been. And um, if they go under, the U.S. in in foreign policy and and strategic terms loses uh, important bases, loses an important army, uh, loses uh, an important support, and loses the support, of course, of a lot of Jewish Americans, who those who still back the Israeli, the Israeli. uh, State, so there's a, there's a there's a lot of under underneath currents going here, and regime change is really just one of them. I think on the whole, if I, that's a that a, regime change is a personal sort of barroom claim. What's important is curtailing things that Iran can do that threaten America's other allies. America's interests. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, my principal worry here is that this will just have the effect of emboldening the the hardliners, the very people that you would hope if your aim was to uh, usher in the gradual or even sudden liberalization and democratization um, of Iran, you would not want to embolden. Um, so, certainly, as, as we were touching on before, um, there was a there was a concerted strategy that the Obama administration pursued, which was um, to. Uh, try to test the relationship with Iran, giving Iran more leverage, giving them an opportunity to join the community of nations in return for greater um, nuclear inspections. And that had considerable promise. It had considerable risks, of course. Um, but by totally upending that strategy in the way the Trump administration has done, it, it may be good domestic politics and it may make Netanyahu happy today. But in terms of the long-term strategy of liberalizing and democratizing Iran, um, it's it's probably not a very good one. Mm. Okay, and, I, and just a final thought 
out as well. I think that this coincides with the uh, anniversary of um, the American hostages held in Tehran um, in the 1970s. So uh, timing is everything, I guess. Yeah. Moving on now, finally, to uh, well, to Australia, down under, because backpackers working their way around Australia will be able to stay longer down under after the government unveiled plans to relax work visas. They will no longer need to leave their jobs every six months and will, in fact, in fact be able to triple the length of their stay if they do additional agricultural work. Well, the government says the move will help farmers fill job shortages, but it has been condemned by Pacific Islanders who say it will take seasonal work away from them. Well, I'm not 18 anymore, but I guess if I was 18 and wanted to have a gap year, then I couldn't think of a better place to, to do this than in Australia, picking fruit. <laughs> but, I mean, you have to ask yourself, really, I mean, are, are the, the Pacific Islanders correct in this? Or Because I mean, don't they have a point? Because I think that they're, they're only allowed to work in Australia for about six months. They're being told, well, OK, you can work there for nine Whereas if you just happen to be a kid who's come from Britain or France, whatever, to pick fruit, you can actually stay there for about 18 months or something. So it does seem a bit discriminatory. It does seem discriminatory. I mean, I think the, the point here is that the Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, uh, it's about the money, right? He thinks that, uh, and rightfully, that these backpackers, some you know, 420,000 or so who come to Australia each year, um, they spend a huge amount of money. The money they make, they then spend down at the pub um, uh, or on well, their... Well, fruit picking's thirsty work, especially well, it, where the sun's high. It certainly is. <laughs> And it looks like they make over 900 mil a year um, spending money throughout these regional towns where they pick fruit. Uh, the prime minister is hoping they can make that over a billion. Uh, the backpackers from Britain and, and elsewhere in Europe and America spend more money than the Pacific Islanders spend when they're in town. Um, and so it's a it's a concerted strategy motivated uh, by money. I think to make the argument um, that this is unjust, you'd have to make the argument that Australia owes it to non-Australians to offer them the same uh, visiting terms of employment. Um, and, and I think there's a legitimate question there. Mm. And, and Kathleen, I suppose as well, that um, from the Pacific Islanders' point of view, it's like, well, hang on a minute, you know, we're your neighbours and you should, surely you should be a bit more um, generous to us because it, it's not just um, the economic thing we're talking about. It, it goes beyond that, that strategically we're important. So come on, respect the relationship. Mm. Yes, well, you mean like uh, Americans should give, be generous with uh, Mexico. <laughs> I mean, the strategic one is a more important one in that sense with the rise of, uh, of China. Um, there is uh, no doubt that it is that China is nosing around some of those islands, and it's short term because Australia is now being nosed around by China as well and is aware of it. In that sense, it, it's a short term gambit. But uh, strategic doesn't doesn't get votes like farmers do. Mm. I mean, the other thing they're allowing the backpackers to do is not have to stay in the north and pick where it is hot. And empty, they're going to get to go down the the south as well. No, it's 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 the farmers. Mm. But it, it's stupid. Sounds, <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like a, a great a, a great life if you're if you are a backpacker, the chance to actually work in another country. But there is a flip side to this: the negative. That a lot of the backpackers are actually underpaid, so they don't necessarily get the right wage protection that um, an Australian would have. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think there's a there's a fundamental moral question there about what are the terms of employment that Australia owes to non-Australians who come and visit. Visit there, and and so if the wary is about exploitation, it looks like it's as much of a wary for the visiting backpackers as it is for the Pacific Islanders. And then you'd want to see some legislation in place um, that argues fair, non-exploitative, equal access contracts for both groups. Especially since that uh, apparently uh, Australian farmers owe the pickers roughly on the order of billion dollars right now that they've not paid them. <laughs> 
Right, you're just arguing the case there for actually not going to Australia to backpack. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> well, look, that brings us to the end of today's show. Geoffrey Howard and Kathleen Burke, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Daniel Bach, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delisanti. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next than at 1900 Hours. It's the Monocle Culture Show. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 with Marcus Hippie. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Juliette Foster. Goodbye.